19 Mount Sinai. And hear, the, hear the word of God. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And thick, uh, and the sound of uh, the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And what he spoke to them, we'll see, was uh, the Ten Commandments. But let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, Exodus 19 is a chapter, we're, we're in such a rush to get to chapter 20, but the amazing thing we find is that it's chapter 19, really, that the New Testament makes more out of. We even find it in Pilgrim's Progress, as I hope to point out. Uh, it's, it's a terribly important chapter. Pray that we would uh, wisely listen to, uh, to, to what you are uh, 
saying to us, both from the Old and New Testaments concerning this mountain. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we saw last time in Hebrews chapter 12, last time in the morning, I mean, the writer to the Hebrews makes a strong contrast between these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, contrasting the two covenants, just as we saw as well in Galatians chapter 4. This is clearly a significant event, which the New Testament writers point to, the coming to this mountain. In Hebrews chapter 12, as you may remember, he, and as we read as well, he recounts the many terrifying things that happen at Mount Sinai, which are recorded. It's a summary of what is recorded in this chapter, Exodus chapter 19. The reason he does so is in order to suggest, in contrasting these two mountains, that we are far better off coming to Mount Zion than to this mountain. In other words, our position as New Covenant believers is far superior, vastly superior, to the position of the Old Covenant saints. With regard to this mountain as well, I remember in Pilgrim's Progress when, at the Bad Council, this is very early on in the book, At the bad counsel of Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Christian goes out of the way, which I think is a good way of putting it. He's journeying to the heavenly city. As you know, he's a pilgrim like we, but he goes out of the way at the bad counsel, seeking Mr. Legality's house. And on the way, we read this. When he got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high, and also that side of it that was next to the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore there he stood still, and he wot not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. Well, it's an interesting way of thinking it, uh, it, thinking of uh, the contrast between coming to the two mountains Imagining Christian on his pilgrimage, actually coming to this mountain and having the exact same experience that Moses and the people did. If you uh, were to look at Pilgrim's Progress and to read uh, that passage, you would see in the margins, not surprisingly, that Exodus chapter 19 is there in the margins, as is as well Hebrews chapter 12. Obviously, the reference to the fear and the fire and so forth were direct references from this passage. But I never quite got out of my head the thought of the hill that is Mount Sinai itself almost seeming to hang over his head to the point that he feared it would fall on his head. That is Bunyan's allegory. That is his way of describing what it means to come to this mountain. It's a strange image, and yet I think it is a fitting one. You won't get get rid of your burden coming to this mountain. And thank God we don't have to. I mean, we don't have to come to this mountain at all. But Moses and Israel did. Now, I don't mean that they had to get rid of their burden there, for no one has ever got rid of his burden coming to this mountain. But what we do find, again, unlike us who have the privileges of living under the new covenant, we have to go out of our way to get to this mountain. But they had to go there. God directed them to this mountain. It was necessary for them. And there was very good reason that she had to. Let us try to see what it was. Why did God lead Israel directly where the new covenant tells us not to go? 
And where Bunyan describes the Christian as going out of his way, finding that his burden only is increasing. Well, we see here Israel here uh, camping at the foot of the mountain. That mountain was Mount Sinai, as we know, in the wilderness of Sinai. Moses, earlier on in Exodus, met with God at the mountain, chapter 3, where God says to him in verse 12, let me read that. says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God, from Mount Sinai, sends him into Egypt. And he tells you, when you come out of Egypt, you'll meet with me here. And so that's exactly what happened. Moses is conscious of God's former word, and he intends to meet with God at the mountain. He goes up to the mountain, and he meets with him there, verse 3. And there we find... Uh, that God was waiting for him. And God there on the mountain instructs, uh, instructs him with these words. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. And the words which he was to say are found in verses 4 through 6. But before we analyze those words, the instructions which God gives to Moses to tell the people. I want to notice here that what the Lord was doing with Moses at the mountain, this is hugely important, he was making a covenant, as he had done with Father Abraham before. Here was Israel coming into covenant as a nation with the Lord. In other words, here was the old covenant begun, administered through God's servant Moses at the Mount of God. Moses, as the minister of the covenant, must tell the people what God tells him to say, no more And no less, as always, the mouth of the prophet is to be filled with the word of God and not his own words. And so God says, I want you to say these things to the people. And then we'll see the people responding to the Lord and then the Lord responding to them uh, throughout this chapter, all the way through chapter four, uh, a covenant ceremony and a covenant being ratified. The first thing he he was to say uh, was what the Lord did. Verse four. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In establishing the covenant, God was calling to mind uh, his prior actions. And the covenant has no other basis. We ought to see this with regard to Israel in the old covenant. And every covenant that is made, every covenantal uh, transaction which we find in scripture depends not on man nor upon works, but upon God. The foundation of the covenant is God himself. And it comes to pass, or it comes into being solely because it is his will that it should. And it is his actions that make it so. Which is why the Lord recounts his actions and also declares what he's about to do. And yet, what we see in verse 4 is that the actions that precede, uh, uh, the actions that he, he calls to mind are not actually the covenant itself, the, the actions which form the basis of the covenant, but rather the actions that precede the forming of this covenant and made them possible. God leading Israel out of Egypt was not the forming of the old covenant. It was rather the condition of the forming of the old covenant. And now having freed her from her bondage and brought her to the mount to meet with God, now he makes the covenant. He not only dealt with the Egyptians, as he said, their adversaries and oppressors with a strong arm, but he bore Israel on eagles' wings. 
leading her out of her bondage, pointing, uh, speaking of the eagle's wings, both to the Lord's swiftness as well as his care. But the really important phrase uh, here is found at the end of verse 4, where he says, and brought you to myself. I led you out of Egypt to this mountain, and I brought you to myself. Well, here we see that that was so. God brought Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness to this mountain to himself in order to be bound to him by covenant. Matthew Henry, this, this was the glory of their deliverance as it is of ours by Christ, that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Quoting Peter, this God aims at in all the gracious methods of his providence and grace to bring us back to himself. And so see that as the heart of the covenant here stated at the outset. I brought you to myself. Verse 4. That was the glory, Henry says, of their deliverance. That it brought them this far into the very presence of God at the mountain of God. But I, I would also say it's the glory of the covenant itself. To be brought to God. To be brought into communion with God. And into a formal relationship with God. Whereby he binds himself to us. That's what a covenant is. There is no higher glory for man than this, than for the infinite creator, the I am, Jehovah, the Lord, to bind himself to man, though he is a sinner. It requires a vast condescension on the part of God, seeing that man is not only created, but sinful. If you read, uh, if you read the confessional statement of what a covenant is, it speaks of the condescension of God by which he proposes to deal with man. Not only condescension on the part of God, but at the same time we would have to say a vast exaltation on the part of man. That man should be, now be brought near to God. Though sin has made him, has made him a stranger to God. Yet we see next that this is a demanding tra transaction in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What we discover, and we can hardly wonder at this, given what we have just seen, God binding himself to man, that the covenant transaction is the most demanding transaction of all. In fact, there is no higher or more demanding thing that can uh, be placed upon man than the covenant. I want you to obey my voice and keep my commandment. This is what the Lord expects the people, expects of the people, given his prior actions and given his present actions. Obedience, keeping the covenant. In other words, there's a side to the covenant here, which is common to all covenants, not just as I said in verse 4, the prior actions of the Lord that brought us to this point, but now the Lord proposing to, to stand in covenant with us, the obligations which he places upon man. That is something which you find not only at Mount Sinai, but at every covenant. Every covenant. We find it with the covenant God made with Abraham, for instance, when he said, surely that was a gracious covenant, but he says, I am the Lord your God. Uh, walk, uh, I can never quite remember, and I'm never content just to summarize Genesis 17.1 And he says, I'm, the, I'm God Almighty, actually. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. That's it. Now, could the Lord have demanded any more of Abraham than that? 
Again, what you have to see is that these covenant dealings are uh, as demanding as could possibly be. Equally, what one finds in the New Covenant, where Christ demands so much of his disciples, even their very selves. He says, no man is worthy of me unless he forsakes all and follows me. You can't live unless you die to yourself. There is nothing in the world more demanding than that God should bring you into a relationship with himself. And if you can't see that, then your, your whole view of the covenant is skewed. Again, as I suggested in the morning sermon last time, the basis of the new covenant being grace is by no means a way of suggesting that we can sin more safely in the new covenant. We are still dealing with the God who is a consuming fire. And the same covenant demands and obligations and curses come upon the people of God. He would have us to obey his voice and keep his covenant. Read the Gospels and tell me whether it is otherwise. Has anyone ever demanded so much of his followers as Jesus Christ? Yes, to be in covenant with God requires a great deal. It requires nothing less than our very selves. The order, of course, is hugely important. He first speaks of his own actions and then he, he lays down his requirements. He first supplies the grace of deliverance, verse 4. And then he requires that we obey his commands, verse 5. You find the same structure in the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, the house of bondage. Keep my commandments. The order is important. Only grace supplies what the law requires. However, having uh, spoken of what this covenant has in common with other covenants, one of the things that we will also notice about Israel in contrast to the prior covenantal arrangements and in contrast, uh, more importantly, with the covenant that we find uh, in, in the New Testament, which we call the New Covenant in Christ, there is, which you clearly see in verse 5, an element of conditionality that is perhaps not found in other covenant or covenantal arrangements seen simply in the word if. Now, therefore, if, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a treasure, special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. If you will indeed obey and keep covenant, then I will be your God. Now that is surely something which requires a bit of explanation. He makes the covenant itself hinge upon their obedience, which is not a principle of grace, but a principle of works. If you will keep this covenant of mine, God says, then you shall be a special treasure to me, but not otherwise. The principle of works that we find here in verse 5 and that we find at this mountain is something we'll have to wrestle with again and again as we continue to consider the life of Israel. But there's no denying it was there. It reminds us of the arrangement which God made with Adam in the garden. I, I spoke to Sue and I said, it doesn't remind us of any prior arrangements. It does remind us of one. And that was the covenant of works in which uh, God, uh, in which Adam found himself in the garden. Adam in the garden only continued to enjoy the blessings of that covenant. And he only would enjoy the ability to pass into a higher plane of existence, even heavenly life itself, through his own obedience to the probation. And just as soon as he fell into sin, so he fell from that covenant and was cast out of the garden. But what we notice is that a similar principle is present here with Israel as a nation. 
Only for her, interestingly, we might notice the order is reversed. Rather than standing within the garden, within the sanctuary of God, being threatened with expulsion, she stands outside the sanctuary and her ability to enter hinges upon her obedience. Adam was in the sanctuary and he was thrust out for his obedience, but Israel stands outside and is promised a place if she will obey. But it was also a place which the Lord will later tell her she can lose if she disobeys and that she does lose, leading to her exile. Again and again, we will notice similarities between Israel and Adam. I won't say I fully understand it. This is something I'm still learning about, something I'm trying to understand myself. It's actually a point, I I don't know if they're still debating it, but for some time, uh, some of the presbyteries were debating this very point, the principle of works in the life of Israel. But I don't think you can deny that it's there. The similarity between the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Israel. Underlying what God did with Israel was a gracious principle. But still there was this element of works. Do this and live. Or if you will do this, then I will bless you. Then I will be your God. Then I will be stand in covenant with you. And that is the point we have to try to understand. Uh, not just here, but as we go on. Again and again we will be considering this point. This is something which uh, Gerhardus Voss notices in his book, Biblical Theology. If you read that book uh, as he progresses through the, the dispensations of God's dealings with man, he always notices the progress and the development of what is new in each dispensation. And he notices that something is new when Israel comes to Mount Sinai in, uh, in his covenantal dealings. He says this, It should be noticed that here the bereath, or covenant, appears for the first time as a two-sided arrangement. Great emphasis is placed on the voluntary acceptance of the covenant by the people. In other words, he's saying you don't see this prior to this. It's something new. And we have to try to make sense of it. Uh, Well, that's all I'll say about that for now. But as I say, I'm opening the door uh, to many future thoughts as we go on with this. What does God promise to do if they will obey? Look at, uh, we're still in verse 5, but also verse 6. He promises them, verse 5, to regard them as a special people, his most cherished possession. He would value them above all nations, though all the earth is his, verse 5. And what is more, he says in verse 6, something which is very striking and which strikes at the core of the covenant itself. You shall be to me a kingdom. Uh, of priests and a holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Here, once again, we find that God is describing what it is to stand in covenant relationship with himself. It is to be sanctified. Israel had hoped as, uh, to, to be a nation. But as a nation, she would be a nation, God says, of priests. And as priests, she would assume a royal stature, a royal priesthood. There was something far more that God had for Israel than a mere national existence outside of Egypt. She was to stand in special relationship to God. And nothing less than this adequately describes what it is to stand in a saving covenant relationship with God. Which is why we find the same exact language in the New Covenant, whether uh, in Hebrews or in 1 Peter. In fact, Peter quotes this very phrase. We find it as well in the book of Revelation. It is because it describes the same relationship. 
The way in which our coming to God, or perhaps better, His coming to us, involves the partaking of His holiness by which we are sanctified. It is a transaction which is altogether holy and thus priestly for all who are partakers thereof. Another way to put this is that the only way to behold God's holiness and thus to partake of His holiness ourselves is to stand in covenant with Him. And apart from this, uh, there is no possibility of doing so, of personal holiness or of beholding His holiness. This fact immediately explains why the covenant functions as it does. Every facet of the covenant we will discover as it unfolds from this point forward, is meant either to impart God's holiness to the people, as for instance we find in the expiatory sacrifices uh, of of the priestly sacrifices, the putting away of sin, or of the commandments themselves which instruct God's people in the way of holiness. And so on the one hand, It is an impartation of holiness. It is a way of enabling God's people to partake of His holiness. Or on the other hand, to impress the people with God's own holiness. And perhaps uh, that is the greater of the two. But what we, we discover in this covenant which God establishes with Israel, as we find here at the outset, is that what was always at stake is the fact of God's holiness. Put another way, This is not something you could discover about God or hope to enjoy yourself on a personal level apart from his covenantal dealings. To stand in relation to God as creator is to behold his power and yes, his glory. But to stand in a special covenantal relationship with God is to enjoy this priestly aspect. And you notice in what he says, he doesn't reserve that for the priests alone as a class. It isn't the fact that there will be a priesthood that makes Israel a priestly nation. No. He speaks of the whole nation in this way. At least this is what was possible for them. He was saying if they would obey his voice and keep his covenant, they would all assume a priestly form and a royal dignity. The whole nation would be holy as those who sins were dealt with by the expiatory sacrifices and whose lives demonstrated the holiness of God by a careful observance of the law. Do you see what is possible God is saying to the Old Testament church? No one can do this but the people of God. No one can enjoy this priestly aspect. But I think that perhaps the most amazing thing of all is what we read next in verses 7 and 8. That the people actually said they wanted this. And that they were prepared to do this. If you know anything about Israel, you'll say how little they knew of their own hearts. But in order for her now to stand in covenant with God, they had to accept the terms of the covenant. There being this two-sided arrangement, as Voss points out. And now we find in verse 8, they having accepted the terms, God tells them to do this next. To make preparations for today and for tomorrow. And then on the third day he would speak to them from the mountain. In accordance with what he had said in verse 6. And the holiness of the transaction that was about to occur. They must, he says, consecrate themselves in this priestly fashion. Why? Well, for one thing. Because they were sinners. Because they lacked the holiness of the Lord. And they were about to have a transaction with a God who was holy. They were unclean. 
everything here was meant to deeply impress this thought upon them. The holiness of God, but also the unholiness of man. Which explains the need of the covenant and the terms of the covenant. He tells them three things. First, consecrate yourselves, that is your hearts. Whenever there is a command to make ready, to sanctify in an outward fashion, there is always the implied idea of inward cleansing. The outward is always a token of the inward, always. And part of Israel's folly is that she never saw this. That when the Lord said, clean your clothes, well, they just cleaned their clothes, and that was all they did. But they never cleaned their hearts. They always seemed to miss this point. But just as soon as the Lord says, I want you to consecrate yourself, I want you to cleanse yourself, he is most obviously speaking of the inner man, from which all manner of sin proceeds, as Jesus tells us. And so God says this, before I speak to you from the mountain, I want you to use these two days. I want you to turn them to a spiritual prophet. I want you to engage in a work of preparation. Prepare your hearts by prayer. Prepare them by mortification of sin, by self-examination and so forth. That's something similar uh, to to, uh, what Paul commends to us before we come to the table. He says, I want you to examine yourself so that you don't come in an unworthy manner. Or the kinds of things we ought to be doing as we prepare for the Sabbath. As the Puritans and uh, those sons of the Puritans who came to this country said, you ought to use your Saturdays well so that your Sundays would be turned to some spiritual good. Matthew Henry again, he says, when we are to attend upon God and solemn ordinances, it concerns us to sanctify ourselves and to get ready beforehand that our hearts may be engaged to approach unto God. God doesn't come to them right away. He makes them prepare for two days. Second, uh, very briefly, outwardly, they were to wash their clothes and also they weren't to touch their wives. But then thirdly, we see that a barrier was to be placed around the mountain to keep them at a distance. They must go thus far, or they may go thus far, but no farther. They may not try to break through and gaze upon the Lord, verse 21. They must keep a distance. This was a mark for them of sanctification, that in their approach they kept up a sense of God's holiness and of their unholiness. They recognized that they were unfit to dwell on the mountain in the presence of a God who was holy. But we should also note, as we saw uh, last week in the morning, that this is one of the fundamental ways that the old covenant was inferior to the new covenant. That they were commanded to stand at a distance as a holy God spoke to them and dwelt with them. While we, on the other hand, if you've understood anything of the book of Hebrews... And what it is exhorting us to do through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, we are bid to draw near. For we are now through him those whom God regards as holy, having been sprinkled with his blood. And so we can't think about this command to stand at a distance and to not transgress the line of of barrier and not think of our privilege and the greater blessings of the new covenant coming to Mount Zion and not to this mountain. They were to stand at a distance, but we are to draw near. But the contrast is even greater when we read of what happens on on that third day. When, as Matthew Henry says, God preached that mighty sermon from that pulpit, Mount Sinai. It was perhaps one of the most terrifying experiences of God in all of Scripture. We considered it last time as part of that great contrast between the two mountains, Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. Thick thick cloud uh, surrounded the mountain. 
thunderings and lightning, the sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder. The mountain we read was all smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the mountain quakes greatly. We are not surprised to read because of this that the people trembled and were greatly afraid at the presence of the Lord at the mountain. Nor are we surprised to read in Hebrews that Moses himself said, I am greatly afraid. I concede, as I've been saying, it is a great thing for God to be in covenant with man. But I'm thankful not to be under this covenant. And I know that's not wrong to say either because the New Testament tells me to be thankful. Be thankful that you stand under the new covenant, not the old covenant. Yes, it was to them a privilege and it was a blessing. But there was also something frightful in it. Here were features which, as we know, were characteristic of the covenant itself. A gloomy, frightful dispensation where the people beheld the glory of God, but in a way that deeply unsettled them and made them afraid. And I think what is perhaps most surprising is the thing that seemed to terrify them most was God's speech, verse 19. We know this because of what is said in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, where we read this, All the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Tell him to stop speaking, Moses. That was the thing that terrified them the most. And of all they witnessed, it is clear they just wanted it to be over. They wanted Moses to deal with them for God, but not not for God to deal with them directly. The speech of God was too much for them. They couldn't bear it. And in some sense, I don't blame them. As I say, who would have wanted to be in their shoes? Who would have wanted to stand at the foot of that mountain? Even Moses trembled at the mountain. And God appeared to them in such a way as to make them tremble. To give them an awful sense of His transcendent holiness. And their profound unworthiness to draw near. God's holiness was seen in His desire for a holy people. A priestly nation. But equally in this, His hatred for sin. And the distance He keeps from the sinner Himself. Lest He break forth in the fury of His wrath and kill the sinner. The whole wonder of this episode is Israel will later say in Deuteronomy that they beheld God and lived. That they didn't die. But still it was a terrible experience and it was meant to be. Here is my final word. You will never find salvation at this mountain. That was the thought I opened with and that is the thought I closed with. To go this way rather than the way which leads to Mount Zion is to go out of the way. As Christian did. And those who do so will learn a sore lesson. They will find that their burden is not lessened, but it is increased greatly. They will find a mountain which looms over them so as to fall on their head. The reason that Mr. Legality's house can be found in this way is because God reveals himself by way of works at this mountain. I won't say all works. There's still grace to be found in the old covenant. But here in the gloom and the fire and the cloud and the darkness, it is the commandment that stands out most prominently and not the gospel. That I doubt anyone can deny. Thus we find the Ten Commandments here at Sinai. 
The law of God. And I thank God that God uttered these commandments at this mountain. I still find in them a rule for conduct which is holy and to, and to which my inner man consents entirely. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I delight in the law of God. It's just I don't find life there. I don't find grace there. I don't find salvation. Because I also find in this law a lack of mercy. A principle of death and condemnation which makes me afraid. The law still thunders forth from this mountain. And as it, as it thunders, so it terrifies. Like Christian, we can't get rid of our burden here at Mount Sinai. Even Moses himself couldn't do it. Though I don't doubt that we'll see... And we'll find Moses in heaven along with the great host and company of believers. But no one ever got rid of his burden at Mount Sinai. No, you have to do what Christian did and what I'm sure Moses himself did and what the New Testament tells you to do. You have to go to Mount Zion and there you will have an altogether different experience. You will still find there God is one who is holy. One whom we read at the end of chapter 12 of uh, Hebrews. Who is a consuming fire still. And so your approach won't be careless or casual. It will be marked by reverence and godly fear. But there at Mount Zion. It is not the commandment that is prominent. As at Mount Sinai. But it is the crucifixion of God's own son. In other words. It is not law but grace that stands out. Most prominently at Mount Sinai. It is not what we must do to stand in covenant with God. But what God did. Even sending his own son to die for us. That he might stand in covenant with us. That is the gospel beloved. And that is the message of the new covenant and of the new testament. And whatever sin abounded through the law. And sin surely abounded through the law. In Israel, in Adam, in yourselves. We find at this mount that grace abounds all the more. And it did so when God sent forth his own son into the world to die for you and to bury your sin in the tomb. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, even my sin. And that is the glory of Mount Zion in contrast to Mount Sinai. It is that Jesus there stands supreme and all who are there this great host of beings, angels and men, even Moses, we will find. Are there worshipping him, the lamb who was slain, praising him for the glory of his grace. And all who ever came to this mount, like Christian, lost their burden. I ask you then in closing, aware as we are of the contrast that we find in the New Testament, of the two mountains, one of bondage, one of freedom, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Which mountain have you come to? Where is it that you are seeking to meet with God and on what basis? Have you come to Mount Sinai and are you still seeking to deal with God on the basis of the commandment? Do this and live. Or have you come to Mount Zion and found there God, the judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood by which we are made clean and which speaks better things than the blood of Abel? Surely I hope we can all say that we've not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion and found all of this and many more things beside. Amen.